Welcome to the Megalithic Marvels podcast. Hey, it's Derek Olson here to reconstruct the prehistoric past with you. And in this episode, I'm going to play a few clips of Graham Hancock talking with Joe Rogan just a few months ago about the Great Pyramids and lost technology, uh, to which I'm going to then share some of my thoughts and even more interesting information on these topics. You are not going to want to miss this episode. Uh, but before we jump into it, I want to let you know or remind you um, that I'm really excited to announce registration is live for our 2012 uh, Megalithic Marvels of Peru tour, which is going to be October 2nd through the 12th. This is going to be an epic expedition of a lifetime, an 11-day journey that's going to take us to uh, famous sites like Machu Picchu, Ojante Tambo, Sacsayhuaman, and like over 20 other sites. Uh, we're going to learn about the incredible Inca Empire. Simultaneously, we're also going to be looking for evidence of lost ancient technology and hints that a civilization predated the Inca in and around Peru and built the megalithic foundations. You can go to megalithicmarvels.com slash tours or click the link in the show notes below uh, for all the information. And I hope to see you this October in Peru. So a few months back, Joe Rogan had Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on the show, and they were obviously talking about all things ancient technology and ancient Egypt. And I want to start off playing you this first clip of Joe and Graham having this interaction about the Great Pyramid and specifically the granite blocks inside the so-called King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid. Check this out. Now, the Great Pyramid of Giza is probably the most stunning of all these ancient structures. And the, the stones are immense, and some of them were cut from a quarry that's hundreds of miles away. How do you think they did that? Well, some of them, the, the granite in the Great Pyramid comes from more than 500 miles to the south. Um, if you look at the famous King's Chamber, its walls and its roof are uh, the, the ceiling of the king's chamber are all made with gigantic uh, granite blocks. Stunning They're, detail. Stunning detail. Those those blocks on the king's and the roof of the king's chamber weigh seventy tons each. Now Egyptologists will tell you that oh they could move heavy blocks because they put them on wet sand and they push them along on wet sand. Well, maybe if you're just at ground level, that will do. But when you're 350 feet above the ground, as you are in the king's chamber, that won't do at all. I don't know how they did it. All I know is they did it. I don't think anybody knows how they did it, how they lifted those stones, how they brought them up to that level. I think we're looking again at a lost technology. And it was this ancient apocalypse 12,800 years ago that wiped that from the human memory banks almost completely, not entirely completely because there were survivors. All right, so in this first exchange here, Graham and Joe start out talking about how the granite inside the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid came from over 500 miles away to the south. Now, I want to hit on that point in just a minute, uh, but first I want to talk about some of these stones that the Great Pyramid is made up of because, you know, a lot of people just falsely assume, well, this is just you know, again, a pile of blocks um, stacked on top of each other into a triangle or that it's all just made of limestone or something. But the Great Pyramid, I've got to point out, is specifically made of the exact stones the ancient builders wanted. It's made of granite, limestone, 
and sandstone. And these different stone elements, along with a combination of water, likely had a great part in the Great Pyramid uh, producing some type of holistic energy in prehistory. So let's look at these different stones that make up the Great Pyramid real quick. There is uh, some of it's made with sandstone. And sandstone is formed under oceans that contain sand and salt. Um, it absorbs negative energy. It's used in sites to usually balance what's considered high energy. Um, and so we see that in different sites. It's also made of limestone, which is known for being highly conductive material, absorbs negative energy and uh, our tour guide, Muhammad Ibrahim, says it, it also absorbs pollution. It plays like an electrical current for granite. And it makes up, you know, 70% of most of the temples you see in Egypt are from this limestone, which I believe comes from the Cairo area. But again, back to granite, specifically rose granite, is what is um, this king's chamber and other parts of the Great Pyramids made up of is, is rose granite. Now, this comes from Aswan. This rose granite contains 20 to 60% quartz. So it's basically a radioactive stone. And because of the ingredients that make up this rose granite, it's it basically, in a sense, can almost send and receive waves like radio waves. And it's a very hard stone. It's like a 7 or 8 on the Mohs scale. Of hardness. Okay, so I say all that to set up the fact that the Great Pyramid is made precisely and specifically of these different elements. And it appears that the Great Pyramid uh, originally was probably built to provide a highly technical society with energy. And it was like this holistic energy device that was harmonically coupled with the Earth to where Earth is the power source and the Pyramid is tapping into it. So that is what the Great Pyramid is made up of. Now let's focus on this granite or this rose granite. As Joe and Graham were talking about, this rose granite comes from over 500 miles away to the south of the Giza Pyramids. Now here's what's crazy. Aswan, the Aswan Quarry specifically, is the only place in Egypt where this rose granite is located. So this is where the megalithic builders were traveling. Okay, so if you pull up your uh, iPhone and you pull up your Maps app and uh, type in Aswan directions from Cairo, you're going to see it's a 10 plus hour drive by car from Giza, where the Great Pyramids are, all the way down to Aswan, where this quarry is. Stop and think about that for a minute. A 10 plus hour car drive over 500 miles. If you're living in the U.S., that could be you driving multiple states uh, across. That's how far away this granite came from, that where it was quarried, all the way to the Giza Pyramid. Okay, so this Aswan quarry. I was actually here in February of last year, and it was uh, one of my favorite sites to visit. As you enter Aswan Quarry, you see what's called the Unfinished Obelisk. And it is this massive, approximately five meter long obelisk um, that weighs approximately 1,200 tons. And it's sitting there um, carved out on three sides, basically. Its bottom half is still attached to the quarry. 
crazy thing is you get up close to it, you walk around it, and you can see that these ancient builders appear to be using some kind of lost ancient technology or tool that could literally scoop out this extremely hard rose granite, again, which is a seven or eight on the Mohs scale of hardness, almost like it was ice cream. I know that sounds crazy, um, but again, if you get down there, you're going to see around the obelisk on all three sides are these one meter long scoop marks. And you also see on the red walls, there's these dark brown uh, marks that go down the wall and into the scoops, which seems to be a sign of excessive heat, like an ultrasonic type tool. But again, that's a little backstory to this Aswan quarry where these massive 70-ton blocks inside the so-called King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid came from. That's a big deal. 500 miles away in our modern era, which would take a 10-plus-hour car ride. And these things are inside uh, the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. Joe Rogan mentions the stunning details inside the King's Chamber, and that kind of made me reflect when I was in there this past February. It's crazy going into this King's Chamber. It's like the Holy of Holies of the Great Pyramid. Again, it's called the King's Chamber by mainstream academia and Egyptologists, although there's no confirmed discovery of an original king in there. But people say, but isn't there a sarcophagus in there? Well, you get up close to this thing, and to me it looks more like it was a, a casing for something, some kind of machine, some type of energy device. Um, because if you get around this, what they call a sarcophag sarcophagus, it looks nothing like the sarcophaguses you see in the Valley of the Kings, where the, where the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC were actually buried. And those sarcophaguses, um, although some of them are granite, they're rounded in the, in the Valley of the Kings. They don't have precision angles and cuts like you see in the king's chamber. This thing looks more like a casing or box. When you look at the top of the box, you see uh, literally precision laser-like cuts into the top of it. You see what looks like machine drill holes. And then on one side, the side you see as you enter uh, the king's chamber, one side looks like it's almost been blown off. So was there an explosion inside of it that caused that? Um, but also the stunning detail, like Joe Rogan said, you get up close to the walls of the Great Pyramid. Like if you just get up there super close with the naked eye or even put a magnifying glass, you are going to see microscopic machine lines on the granite wall surfaces. Okay, so there is so much detail in there that people have no idea about. It's not just that these stones are massive and that they are 70 tons, but again, you can see machine-like marks on the surface walls. I really enjoy what Graham said about the ceiling of the king's chamber in this first uh, snippet. I've heard him also talk elsewhere about um, above the king's chamber are five further chambers. And you can uh, find photos of these massive chambers constructed with walls and roofs made, again, of rose granite that all weigh approximately 70 tons. But again, I want to throw that out, that 
above the king's chamber are five other ones, massive ones. And these granite beams have been elevated to a height, again, as Graham says, of more than 350 feet above the ground. How could this have been accomplished using ramps, ropes, and pulleys, or wet sand, as mainstream Egyptology asserts? When we consider the basic laws of physics, such as you can't haul a stone wing tens of tons up a ramp that exceeds 10 degrees. And in this clip, Graham uh, kind of ends it with talking about how he believes we're looking at lost technology that was wiped out by an ancient apocalypse some 12,800 years ago. And that in turn, this basically wiped out the knowledge the ancients had from their memory banks about this, this ancient technology. He goes on to mention that there were survivors. I mean, can you imagine being one of the survivors of this supposed ancient apocalypse? That would suck to go from basically living in this golden age where there's these gigantic pyramids working as ancient holistic energy generators, likely some kind of free energy and technology that could lift granite blocks with ease, cut them, to waking up, uh, I visualize as almost, that would be then the caveman era, right? I mean, we're, we seem to be hearing more and more information today coming from insiders and experts, even in the government, that something similar could happen to us uh, in America if there was an EMP attack, electromagnetic pulse, or some kind of geomagnetic storm um, if that happened, it could send us back to the Dark Ages. And I've looked into this just a little bit. You know, an EMP occurs when a nuclear device is detonated high in the atmosphere. And so what would happen is the electromagnetic discharge um, would basically permanently disable all the electrical systems that run nearly all of our civilian and military infrastructure. So some massive EMP attack on the United States would produce basically unimaginable devastation. Communications would collapse, transportation would halt, and electrical power would simply be non-existent. So, and again, in a matter of seconds, we could go back to the Dark Ages. Again, the more you learn about this happening in our modern age in a weird way, makes it more believable about what appears to have happened some 12,800 years ago, okay, where we're staring at these great pyramids that are the greatest uh, megalithic marvels on the planet, and we can't replicate them today. We couldn't even begin to rebuild this with our greatest modern engineering. Graham hits on this a little bit more in detail in this next clip, so check this out. I think the key thing is we're, we're looking at technologies that are not the same as ours. Yes. And that's yes, partly that's why archaeologists can't see them, because they're looking for us in the past, and they're not open to the possibility that there are whole other kinds of technology that could be used. Right. I always go back to the ancient Egyptian traditions that speak of priests chanting as these huge blocks were lifted into the air. Were they using some kind of sound 
uh, effect, some kind of so, some kind of use of sound that was able to manipulate matter. We know that sound can manipulate matter, as a matter of fact. But they're lifting these blocks again and again. It appears in ancient ancient Egyptian traditions. The notion that we could lift huge blocks with sound seems absurd to archaeologists, and yet it's there in the traditions of the Egyptologists. So in this brief clip, Graham asks if the ancient pyramid builders were using sound that could manipulate matter and in turn elevate multi-ton granite blocks. He then references this ancient Egyptian tradition of priests that would chant as blocks were lifted into the air. Now, I am going to share with you uh, about a fascinating depiction I saw in Egypt of what I believe was levitation technology. Uh, but first, I want to set this up by stating that there have been dozens of researchers the last handful of years that have managed to use sound waves to levitate and move tiny particles and liquid uh, droplets. You can find some of these YouTube videos that people uh, have put out there. Um, one of these experiments uh, was carried out by a joint team of researchers in the UK and Brazil. I think this was in 2016. And they lifted a 50 millimeter uh, ball several centimeters off the ground where it remained suspended for as long as the sound waves uh, were generated. Uh, just one year later, I believe, another group of researchers working out of the University of Bristol successfully levitated a ball of two centimeters in diameter. Um, the UK and Brazil team basically surpassed previous limits on the size of the object levitated by aligning three ultrasonic transducers, which are these devices that convert electric energy into sound energy. Um, they put these transducers in a tripod arrangement, and their combined effect created a standing stationary sound wave that in effect negated the force of gravity in a localized area. Now, the University of Bristol team, uh, on the other hand, combined a single ultrasonic transducer, transducer with a sound reflector to manufacture a standing sound wave, uh, which maintained its stationary status after being re repeatedly reflected back on itself. The point is these studies prove that levitation through the manipulation of sound waves is possible and that more than one way exists to get the job done. I just saw another video, I think it was more recently, just the last couple of years, of uh, two guys in this lab. They had this small levitation device where this thing is spitting out these sound waves in a vertical position, and they were literally squeezing these water droplets through a syringe literally into the air, and they're just suspended there in space, like, you know, with a millimeter between them just hanging there. Incredible to see. And then they put in these little uh, plastic balls, and they were just suspended as long as the machine was on. Really fascinating uh, to see. So we've got some modern-day uh, examples here. Um, also, in the 10th century, there was an Arab historian named Al-Masudi, I believe. And this guy traveled the world. Again, he was a historian. He wrote a lot. He wrote about ancient Egypt. And he also wrote about the methods he alleges they used to move massive stones. And you can find his writings out there. Um, 
but he talked about some of this technology that he believes the Egyptians used. And he claimed that a basically a magic-like uh, papyrus was imprinted with symbols and was placed under each massive stone, after which a metal rod was struck against the stone or the block to initiate some kind of levitation process. And so according to this historian, the stone would be guided along a fenced path with metal poles placed on each side or some kind of poles. And some believe these poles could have been used to create high frequency uh, sound vibrations, which would have been responsible for creating the levitation effects. Having been in the Great Pyramid itself, I can tell you it possesses some extraordinary acoustic properties, you know, showing that it demonstrates the capacity to dramatically amplify sounds generated at certain frequencies. I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to the interviews I did with Robert Edward Grant. In the first one, this was uh, about two months ago, he talks about his experiences inside this very king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, and he even mentions the frequency at which the so-called sarcophagus, or as I would say, the box, the casing, um, that it vibrates at. And he was saying if you get that thing, uh, if you hum in a specific way at a certain frequency, that thing will literally reverberate with sound and it will go louder and louder and louder. And it was fascinating to kind of hear him get into the nuts and bolts of the science of the frequency. So the Great Pyramid uh, does have these acoustic properties. Okay, now to the exciting part of this uh, depiction of levitation I saw. Okay, so located hours upon hours south of the Great Pyramids in Giza is Luxor. This is down closer to the Aswan Quarry I talked about earlier. Well, south of Luxor is this massive ancient temple called Esna Temple. It's dedicated to the ram-headed god or netter Kanum, which was one of the gods of the Nile, I believe. Now, when you go inside this temple, which is literally larger than life, I mean, you're literally dumbfounded. You're picking your jaw up off the floor at the scale of this temple. I mean, really, you feel like you're an ant. This thing is so massive. Well, when you go inside this temple to one of the uh, huge walls inside, there is this fascinating depiction. And our tour guide, Muhammad Ibrahim, uh, the great tour guide and Egyptologist. He's the guy that leads our Egypt tours. Um, and he's one of the few Egyptologists, I often say, who's broken with the mainstream and believes that a previous civilization before the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC built the pyramids. Okay, so he's always looking for evidences of lost ancient technology. So on our last tour, he stopped us at this massive wall and he told us to, you know, pay attention to this depiction. And he shared with us how what we were looking at was a very important scene from very, very ancient Egypt. And he shared how the scene is literally called the levitation of the temple. So when you're looking at this depiction on this wall, you see these two large figurines or figures. One is the ram-headed god Kanum. On the left, 
and the other on the right is the king at this time. Uh, we're talking an ancient king, one that probably lived possibly 12,000 years or older. And Canum and this king are standing on either side of a temple, which is pictured in this uh, depiction. And this temple that's depicted actually represents the temple itself that we were in. And the depiction of the temple looks like the actual temple, so it's like a miniature version of it. In the depiction, you can see how the temple is surrounded by what looks like an energy field. And when you look closely, you see that the temple is literally levitating above the ground level where the figurines are standing. So their feet are clearly touching ground level, and this temple that's depicted is quite a bit up above the ground, so it's obvious this thing is floating, right? Now, both the figurines are holding some sort of rods in their hands, and the king on the right side of the temple, he is holding something else in his hand, and it looks like what could be an energy field, and it's portrayed by what looks like a stream of these dots or droplets that go from his hand and kind of go down and around the temple. So I believe this is one of the sources that Graham is referencing where these ancient Egyptian traditions of levitation is coming from. It's coming from Esna Temple down in Luxor. And I'm going to link a video of this depiction in the show notes so that you can see it yourself. So make sure and click the link in the show notes below to watch the video and see exactly uh, what I'm talking about. When I think of sound waves or acoustic levitation, I can't help but also think of Tesla's infamous quote, I say it often, where he basically stated that if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, you have to think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. I think that quote is important if you understand the life and inventions of Tesla. I've been studying him more and more as I believe he seems to have somehow made some breakthroughs into tapping into some of this lost ancient technology that these great pyramids were possibly uh, built with. When you consider again what Tesla created when it comes to um, electricity and so much more. I also think of uh, several verses in the Bible that seem to run with this idea of sound resonance. Uh, if you're familiar with um, the scripture, the verse in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Obviously, this is talking about uh, the Christ, um, but it's interesting that he's called the Word, because we know in Genesis 1, it talks about how God spoke, and he created everything into existence with a word, with words, with sound waves. I think of Joshua chapter 6, which tells the story of how uh, God tells Joshua to have Israel, the nation, walk around the megalithic walls of Jericho, which was in the day an impenetrable megalithic fortress. 
and God tells the, Israel to walk around this this temple, this this city for six days. And then God said on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing trumpets. Okay, so we got sound right there. We've got tuning. They were obviously blowing the trumpets to a certain key. Then I believe the story goes that God said when you hear these priests sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout and the wall of the city will collapse. And the point is here that Israel brought down some of the greatest megalithic walls of their day by using sound waves. Uh, I've been to the ancient site that was Jericho and it's literally obliterated. It's in ruins and uh, this once massive impenetrable fortress of a city is gone. Man, there's so much I could share on this topic of sound resonance or acoustic levitation and sound waves, but uh, it's crazy to consider. Uh, and I'll ask you guys a question. Do you think the Great Pyramids and many of these truly megalithic monuments around the world, whether they're in Peru or Baalbek, Easter Island, were they somehow built, cut, or moved using sound waves? Okay, let's listen to this final clip of Joe and Graham talking about basically this different path of technology that the ancient builders likely used uh, that, is, that was completely different than the technology that we think about and use today. Listen to this. I think that's what's important about what you're saying is that we have this very limited idea of technology based on what we've experienced. Yeah. But if you had anatomically similar human beings that live for thousands and thousands of years. Stuff just keeps on yeah. getting older. If you think about the amount of progress that we've achieved as modern humans just in the last few hundred years, yeah. if you go back 400 years to now, it's a stunning amount of achievement. Absolutely stunning. Yeah. And if you have a completely different path of technology, yeah. one that's not utilizing internal combustion engines and cranes and yeah. and the like that we experience Leverage, today. mechanical yeah. advantage, everything that our, our tech is based around. Something that's insanely advanced, tens of thousands of years of a different path. Yeah. And that's that may be what we're looking at. And that may begin to explain these, these otherwise inexplicable monuments that have survived. In this last exchange with Joe Rogan and Graham Hancock, Graham makes you know the comment of these inexplicable monuments that have survived. And I like that phrase, inexplicable monuments, you know, because we see them all over the world, whether it's on Easter Island. There's megalithic walls there that look almost identical to those found in the Cusco, Peru area. On Easter Island, you also have these giant Moai statues. Obviously, Peru, you've got... Uh, sites like Machu Picchu, Ojante Tambo, Asakseuaman, that's got, I believe, 120 ton stones that make up the remnants of these walls. And that's not even counting the 12 feet that go underground. These things are so massive yet, so precision to where you can't fit a razor blade through the joints. Uh, you got the stones at, at Baalbek. Um, and then, of course, here in Egypt, as we've been talking about, the Great Pyramids, 
are inexplicable monuments. Add to that list the Great Sphinx of Giza, which we've talked about at length on other podcasts, so find those. So many mysteries with that. I would throw out the Red Pyramid and the Bent Pyramid. These are south of Giza, I believe, about an hour or so uh, near Dashur. They're not as famous as the Great Pyramids because they're not as big, um, but they're equally amazing. I mean, I got to go in the Red Pyramid, and this thing is looks almost identical to the Great Pyramids inside. Precision, massive granite blocks and chambers and passageways. Um, where you can see, again, this thing looks like it was some kind of ancient machine. And then not far from the Red Pyramid is the Bent Pyramid, which I hate that name because it gives the connotation that there's something wrong with the Bent Pyramid when it appears that it was made exactly how the ancient builders wanted it. Why are mica crystals found all over the ground around the Bent Pyramid only and not next door at the Red Pyramid. Um, it's likely that the Bent Pyramid was once covered with these mica crystals until they fell off after some disruption. When you kind of look into mica, it's a, it's a heat or energy insulator. And so again, was this pyramid producing some kind of energy? And again, it's interior. If you look at the inside of the Bent Pyramid, Again, which has this connotation that there's something wrong with it. No way. The inside looks almost identical to the Red Pyramid. Again, megalithic precision. Another inexplicable monument I would add to the list is the Valley Temple, or what's known as the Valley Temple. It's located right next to the Great Sphinx of Giza. And the crazy thing is it's made with some of these same megaton, megalithic blocks that are inside the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid. Yet, the functionality is completely different. Where the pyramid doesn't appear that it was made for humans to traverse inside, this ancient temple that is now known as the Valley Temple, you can clearly see this was built for ancients, humans or humanoids to walk through. In this temple, you see rose granite stones that literally bend corners. This structure features these massive multi-ton blocks, you know, 50 tons, 100 tons plus. But they're so tightly fit together, precision-wise, you can barely even tell where the stones separate. We pointed these out on our last tour. Look at how fine and how precise these massive 100-ton blocks fit together. And people thought we were lying. They thought, no, that's a crack. That's a hairline crack. But again, if you get, get in there close, you see this is a precision straight line that outlines this perfect rectangle, rectangular block. That, to me, is an inexplicable monument. I also have to give you one more, and that would be um, the Serapium, located in the area known as Saqqara, the Serapium is one of the most enigmatic ancient sites in all of Egypt. This uh, labyrinth was discovered or rediscovered in the 1850s, and it hides these 25 granite black boxes, crafted again with laser-like precision. Each box weighs 
uh, approximately 70 tons, and it comes with a lid that's approximately 30 tons. So combine those two together, you're talking, talking about a 100-ton box that is precision cut inside and outside with the same piece of stone. And each box was found empty, thus their purpose really remains a mystery. It's estimated that these 100-ton granite boxes would need at least 2,000 men to transport them. However, when you get down into this subterranean area where they are hidden, you realize that the tunnels are only two feet wider than the boxes themselves. So how would there have been enough space inside for a vast army of thousands of men to lower and transport these boxes? And also, by the way, the stone was also quarried in Aswan hundreds of miles away. The official uh, statement from Egyptologists is that these boxes were made during the late dynastic period as burial places for sacred bulls. But as I often point out, how would the dynastic Egyptians have been able to precision craft these hard granite boxes, which rank seven or eight on the most scale of hardness, with their softer copper tools and sometimes iron tools, which rank no more than a three or four on the Mohs scale. You can't precision cut and craft granite with softer tools using blunt force. It's impossible. On a few of these massive boxes, you can see that there's hieroglyphic carvings found on the outside of three of them. Um, but again, you can tell this, these hieroglyphs are very crude. It's like they were scratched uh, or etched into it. And they appear nothing like the precision of the boxes themselves. So I believe it's likely that the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC came along and found these boxes and then tagged them with their hieroglyphs. So there is a handful of inexplicable monuments for you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as we heard from Graham Hancock and Joe Rogan in a couple clips there about the Great Pyramids and ancient acoustic levitation. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast from wherever you are listening. And until next time, keep exploring.